Hear now the word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you once again to provide for us through your word today. Send your spirit to help us so that we not only understand your scriptures, but so that we are changed by them and by you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I became a Christian as a teenager Uh, But before I was a Christian, I was an atheist, and I didn't believe in God at all, but I was surrounded by Christians and Christian things, and I was made to go to church, and while I was going to church on Sundays, I heard the big stories from Jesus in Sunday school. Um, One of the things that, that you may notice if you look at our Sunday school curriculum here is that we cover everything. We even cover the weird stuff in the Old Testament. Um, the Sunday school teachers can attest to that. You know, how on earth do I talk about some of these rather gross passages? Well, that's, that's challenging. Um, but when I was in Sunday school, we went to a, through a curriculum that only gave you the big stuff, the greatest hits from the Old Testament um, and from the New Testament. Um, but, and so what that meant was this. As an atheist, I had a lot of assumptions about the Bible. I had a lot of assumptions about what it said. And I had specifically related to today, I had this assumption that whoever wrote the Gospels wrote them with this motivation. I assumed that the Gospels were written so that the authors could have power and respect and authority. So my my assumption was that they were written because somebody was making a power play. And there was some unknown, mysterious group of people who were basically saying... Hey, you see Jesus here? You respect him? Well, you should respect us and listen to us too. And my assumption was that in the Gospels, not only does Jesus come out looking like a hero, but that so do the apostles. You know, I don't remember in my Sunday school years hearing embarrassing stories about the apostles. And that assumption that I basically had was wrong because... You see, I didn't get this assumption, this belief that I had from the Bible. I didn't get it from reading through the scripture for myself. I got it by assuming things about the Bible. And eventually, I think I was probably 16 or 17 years old, I began to rethink my assumptions. I began to rethink my my atheism. I started to read the Bible for myself and to read it with a, a more critical eye instead of just looking through it for the greatest hits that I was so familiar with. I started to read stuff that I hadn't read before. And as I did that, I started to see places where the apostles don't actually look very heroic at all. And in fact, they actually look really desperate and sad. 
and places where you would read them and just go, you know, you could have left that out and we would have respected you more. (laughs) Um, Sections where they don't understand Jesus, where they don't understand what Jesus is doing. There are, there are places where they make fools of themselves. They put their foot in their mouth. Uh, you have passages like the one here today. Uh, reading this as an atheist, I remember really changing my mind and realizing that I assumed wrongly when it came to the motivations of the authors of the Gospels. Because the Gospels are not written like somebody who is trying to get you to respect them. They just aren't. Because if you pay attention, this, this book just doesn't bear the hallmarks of somebody who is making up a story that will leave you liking them more as you read the end of it. And instead, it bears a different mark. It bears the mark of someone who was there and wants you to know what happened, even if they end up looking bad at the end of it. The Gospels, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the Gospels bear marks of authenticity. And this passage is a case in point, right? Because it leads off with this this desperate and kind of sad question from the disciples, right? The sort of moment where you think everyone would have liked you more if you hadn't said the quiet part out loud. Like you were thinking it and you decided to just say it. Um, The sort of thing that you would not write unless it actually took place. And so let's just learn the hard lesson Jesus has for us and not just for the disciples here, but but for all of us when it comes to true greatness in the kingdom of God. Um, First, a selfish question. Second, a childlike answer. And then third, a stern warning. First, we have a a selfish question. You know, as I say, it's a rather embarrassing question, so I don't want to belabor the point too much. But uh, I'm going to read verse one again out loud. It says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Mark's gospel, I actually think Mark's gospel is the one I read and I had my mind changed because Mark gives a little more information. He augments this just a bit. He gives us more background on the conversation. Mark, in his, in his telling of this conversation, shows us that actually this is prompted by the disciples arguing about which one was the greatest so the question the question really seems to come from an assumption that among the 12 of them there must be some sort of hierarchy uh, some sort of of gradation of importance surely one of them is more important more influential than all the others ultimately they aren't asking jesus to satisfy their curiosity they're really asking jesus to settle an argument right um think of Think of all of human history, all of the great uh, movements, all of the great nations. If you were to look at a chart of human civilizations, every single one of the great civilizations in human history is headed by a supposed great man, right? Somebody who rises to the top and dominates his fellow human beings. That is the way of, of human beings. That's the way that the life of Israel has been. That's life of, uh, the way the life of all of the nations has been. And it's the way that Rome is. And it's certainly the case that the disciples hate Rome as just as all the Jews in this time did. And they assume that whoever's going to overwhelm Rome is also going to be have somebody at the head. There is an assumption of hierarchy. It's built into the culture. 
But there are all these layers of selfishness, ambition here in the question, right? Because on the one hand, some of them at least want to be the greatest, and they're arguing about that. On another level, they disagree about which of them would be, and they want to be right about who would be, right? So, so there's ambition, not just to be great, but to be right about being great. They go to Jesus so they can know not only who is the greatest, but who is right about who is the greatest. And I, I think this pinpoints the problem of ambition so far. Now, the word ambition doesn't get used here, but we should be clear I want to be clear that not all ambition is wrong. Uh, ambition. Ambition is the drive to do or achieve something. And when ambition aims at something that is ultimately uh, at God and his glory, ambition can be a good thing. We know this from Scripture because Paul in Romans fifteen twenty says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Right, So here you, you see that ambition is something that can be channeled. It's something that can be devoted to a good cause. It's something that's devoted, in this case, to the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. So, so I want you to see that, that ambition is not wrong and ambition in itself is not sin. If it has the end of uh, uh, aimed at God and others and God's glory. The world actually needs more biblically ambitious Christians. Um, the world really does need followers of Jesus who are eager to do what they can to be useful to God and to be useful to his kingdom. Whatever that might mean in each person's case, it's a good thing to do that if you plan to use what you achieve to glorify God. I want to use, give some examples, right? The, the, uh, the business owner who seeks to expand so that he can keep his business going and create jobs for more employees and have finances by which to bless God's people or others or the church, right? Or um, uh, think of a Christian who wants a promotion at their job or maybe they want to get a, an advanced degree in higher education so they can better provide for their family or live as a faithful Christian in everyday life. It, it doesn't mean that... The, the only ambition that matters is, oh, I'm going to go into the ministry. I'm going to become a missionary. We can be ambitious about godly things in our everyday lives. Um, Christians can come from all walks of life. But the world does need more people like this who are, who are seeking to better themselves so that they can bless God and bless his people. Now, I, I absolutely hate, in fact, I've done this for two weeks now. I've taken pot shots at the so-called prosperity gospel. Um, and I hate it so much that I often react by emphasizing contentment and, and poverty. And I think that's the right thing for us to do. We should be content whatever our circumstances. Paul says that. Not only if we have less than others, but also if we have more. Paul says, be content with where you are. But here, here's the thing for us as Christians. I think it's very easy for us to be so eager not to sound like health and wealth prosperity churches that we sort of swing the other way and we guilt people for doing well. Or we, uh, we guilt people for seeking to have an advanced degree or seeking to be useful to the world in various ways. We, we can overcorrect and make it sound like you're not content if you decide to better yourself, right? Um, and what that means is that in some quarters, many Christians are actually sorely lacking in ambition. And, and some really need a kick in the pants, right? Some really need to be encouraged and prodded to forge ahead and be more driven and less passive. 
In fact, that may be the greater need at the moment. It is very possible for ambition to be utilized well, harnessed well, to be a rich blessing to God's people. Christian charity and generosity is often enabled by such people. Um, There are many seminary students, and I'll include myself there, uh, who are able to attend seminary because of the generosity of people who were ambitious and did well financially and were able to use what they had to glorify God and be a blessing to God's people. Um, My daughter is currently benefiting from a scholarship for preacher's kids at Belhaven University. And that was created by someone who was ambitious in a godly way, and when they, when they succeeded financially, they took those funds and they used them to bless students and they used them to bless the church, and in this case, to bless pastors' families. Um, there are ways that ambition can be a great blessing and not sinful if, if it aims at the glory of God and the blessing of others. Um, a while ago, um, Travis and I were having a, a, on the podcast, we were talking about the purpose of education and And one of the things we talked about was that many uh, of the modern education models see education as preparing students to go out into the workforce and to make them employable and make them able to make lots of money. Okay, but why? Why make lots of money? Why do that? What, What would you do with the money? Would you just serve yourself? Would you just serve your appetites? Would you... Why would you want to have a job or make any money, let alone a lot of money? What's the aim? What's the purpose? What's the goal? Why are you doing this? And many can't answer that. And how you answer that helps to understand whether there is selfish ambition or healthy ambition that is driving you. If we believe that the things that God gives are meant to serve us, that's a sign of sinful ambition. But if we're driven by a desire to be useful to people, to help others, to be a blessing to God's work, then that seems to be a sign of healthy ambition, the sort that Paul talks about even in Romans 15. Sinful ambition is the problem. Four times the New Testament condemns ambition, but it always condemns selfish ambition. It uses that phrase four times. Four times, Paul accuses false prophets in Philippians 1.17 of proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. He tells Christians in Philippians 2.3 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See that outward facing quality of the person who doesn't have a selfish kind of ambition. Uh, James says that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And then later, James also says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And so what you start to see is that to the New Testament writers, that modifier, the word selfish, is very important. The New Testament is consistent about only condemning selfish ambition, ambition that terminates not in God, but in the self. And so let me press you, Christian, toward being ambitious. Let me press you towards being ambitious about the right things, about having the right ends, by having the right things that you aim at, by making your life about the glory of God and the good of others. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6? He says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added to you. 
This is a person whose life is aimed at God. And then in their ambition and in their service accumulates things which the, uh, the life that is aimed at God and others is able to use in a way that someone whose life is aimed at God and others is going to use them. The fruits of our ambition should rest with God and his will, Jesus says. But the work is something that we are responsible to plan and strive for with God. Not things and not power and not accumulation is the goal. The problem in this passage today is that this question of the disciples does not come from healthy ambition. It comes from selfish ambition. See, here's the, here's the, here's the problem The danger of selfish ambition. With selfish ambition, we will believe that God is out to make much of us. We can think that we are are more significant than others, or in the worst case, we can start to think that our priorities are more significant than God's priorities. And so maybe even early on, we start off with the question, what would the Lord want? And by the end, all we can really think of is, what do I want? Those things are symptoms of selfish ambition. The reality is that our purpose in life is to make much of him. And if we turn that upside down and we live like God exists for our sake, if we act like God exists to make much of us, we are in the dangers that are posed by selfish ambition. All of this is why I call this first point a selfish question. It's very focused on the self, very focused on them, very focused on what they have to gain. Second, today, Jesus gives a childlike answer. He responds in verse 2 and 3, and he says this, Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, isn't this an interesting contrast, really, right? In verse 3, Jesus doesn't begin by talking about greatness in the kingdom, He's just talking about even entering the kingdom. Like that's how he actually wants to start off. In other words, Jesus begins with something more important than greatness. He begins with the need for conversion. Uh, He sees, you see, see that when Jesus says, unless you turn. And that word turn is another word. If you look at the Greek word, it's the Greek word for conversion. It's the word for repentance. It's the word for, for heart change. Jesus says, if, you must, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must be converted. You must have a heart change. <clears throat> Before you can be great in the kingdom, Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be given a new heart by the Holy Spirit. Before you can be great in the kingdom, you must be in the kingdom. <laughs> and how can we do that? Well, it is simple and it's difficult. right? On, on our own, conversion isn't just difficult. Conversion is impossible. Controlling our own heart is something that perhaps we want to do, and yet we cannot do it for ourselves. We are totally dependent on God. Uh, Jesus says this in the Gospel of John. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. And so to come to Jesus Christ means being humble. It involves admitting things about ourselves we don't want to admit. The sort of things that we admitted in our confession of sin this morning. Right? It involves saying things about ourselves that we wish weren't true. And we live in an age where if we wish something was true, oftentimes we think, well, I'll just say it a lot and I'll say it loudly and maybe eventually it will be true. Are you resistant 
to admitting hard things about yourself. When people confront you with sins or when people confront you with wrongdoing or when God confronts you with wrongdoing from yourself, do you immediately jump and make excuses? Are you, are you slow to, to accept blame? Do you pass the blame to everyone who isn't you in your life? Are you defensive if someone confronts you? Do you always have a reason why you did it and you always think it's a good reason? Listen to Jesus here. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's not even talk about greatness. Let's talk about being in the kingdom. Will you become like a child? Will you come to God in your need, in your emptiness, and with your sin, and hand them over to God and admit that you need Jesus to wipe the slate clean? That takes humility. That takes lowering yourself. There are obstacles to kingdom greatness, right? There are things that threaten the humble simplicity of childlike faith. And I'm speaking very practically at this point. The sort of things that just get in the way of the kind of childlike faith Jesus is talking about here. Um, Here's one obstacle to childlike faith. Misplaced confidence. Misplaced confidence. We, We overestimate ourselves. Uh, we overestimate ourselves, and therefore we can be quite puffed up. Uh, Jean Twinge, in her book Generations, talks about the millennial generations. Uh, the millennial generation is those born after 1980, but before 1994. And one thing she says is that millennials have objectively measurable, skyrocketing self-confidence that was fed to them, and it's not their fault necessarily, it was fed to them by their parents and by television and by school teachers. Um, And by the way, lest I sound like I'm picking on millennials, I was born in 82, so these are my people. So we have skyrocketing self-confidence. But (laughs) she, she talks about the fact that teachers and parents all believe that if they fed the self-confidence of students then they would do better in life, that they would feel more driven, that they would feel uh, better about themselves, and therefore they would feel more ambitious to go out and achieve great things. And in the book, though, uh, Twinge talks about this polling that shows millennials have a radically elevated sense of self and of their own abilities and gifts. The majority of millennial college students, now listen to what I'm saying, the majority of them, said they have above average intelligence. (laughs) It doesn't take above average intelligence to know that we can't all have above average intelligence. (laughs) But the majority of my generation apparently thinks that we have above average intelligence. Um, Our generation consistently overestimates objectively measurable information about ourselves. If you ask our generation what our IQ is, we will guess higher. Uh, If you ask us what grade we got on assignments, we will guess better than we got. Uh, If you ask us what our GPA is, we will guess higher than it is. Um, And then she also says this. In the book, she says that actually there's no correlation between someone's high self-confidence and their achievement in life. Uh, Even though society has spent decades trying to instill confidence into students, it turns out that the confidence is not an accurate predictor of measurable outcomes. In fact, she actually points this out. She says, and again, not coming from a Christian. She says, 
that if we have unfounded self-confidence, we will be less open to correction. And we may even stop seeking to grow or learn because we will believe we've arrived. We may even excuse our bad behavior and think that everyone else is the problem. Why am I saying this? Am I saying this because it's just time to pick on my people? No. Um, I'm saying this to illustrate something. Misplaced confidence is very common. It has been instilled not only into our generation, but by previous generations, which means it's not just a millennial problem. It's a Gen X problem. It's not just a Gen X problem. It's a baby boomer problem. It is something that we have as human beings as a problem. We've just systematized it and made it official. Um, Misplaced confidence doesn't belong to any one generation. But if we think that we're already great, we're going to be very slow to come to God in humility. You know, I think it's very possible that this is one factor in why we see an increasing number of people identifying as nuns. And I don't mean N-U-N's, like, you know, like going to a, a convent. But I mean nuns as in people who are not identifying with any specific religion. Because what we've done is we've actually told people over and over and over again uh, with Stuart Smalley that I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and people like me, you know. And if you feed that to people for long enough, then you come to them with a message like what the gospel says, which the gospel leads off with that bad news. You are not good and you are not as smart as you think. And people like you, but they're also scared of you, right? And so if, if you go to people with that message, it's so contrary to what they've heard before that they'll, they'll listen to another voice that says good things to them. Um, we must be willing to say, I am a sinner. J.C. Ryle says that the surest mark of true conversion is humility. He says the surest mark of true humility. Something is fundamentally wrong with me. I have done wrong. I have broken God's law. I need to be born again. If we won't say that, It may be that we have misplaced self-confidence. It may be that we're proud, that we're unwilling to see the sinfulness of our own hearts. And that's why Jesus calls us to childlike faith here. There are other obstacles to childlike faith. I want to mention a couple of them briefly. Here's one. Knowledge without love. Knowledge without love. That that can be an obstacle, right? A a person with great knowledge um, but no love, what's going to happen when they have information? They're going to see that, see what they know as a tool that we have and others don't. And it's going to feed the pride. And instead of seeing our knowledge as a blessing for others, we're going to see it as a lever by which we can control and dominate other people. That's an obstacle to childlike faith, isn't it? Another obstacle to childlike faith is a critical spirit. In other words, we don't see the good that God is is working in others. Uh, We don't see the good that God is working in others. We're not charitable. Instead, there, there may be good that God is up to, but all we're willing to see is negativity. All we can see is the problems. All we can see is the ways that other people fall short. We will... We will see reasons to look down on others and reject them if we have a critical spirit. A critical spirit is an obstacle to childlike faith. Because if we're so critical that we have trouble receiving input from others or help, then we're going to struggle to hear truth from anybody who isn't us. All right? If we aren't careful, this critical spirit 
can turn into cynicism where we only think darkly about others and we assume everyone has bad motivations and and we refuse to see any good that is taking place around us. A cynical attitude, a critical spirit. This is an obstacle to childlike faith. Now you might think that means that Jesus rejects all the premises of the disciples' questions. Maybe he's trying to say, well, really, everyone is, is equal in the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't actually do that. Um, Jesus actually does affirm that there is such thing as greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Right? He says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, so he actually accepts one of their premises. Right? The irony of being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is that this person doesn't care that they're the greatest in the kingdom. And the person who doesn't care whether they are the greatest isn't the greatest. That's the irony, right? This sort of reminds me of, of something that I, I remember my, my, one of my professors, Guy Waters, saying in class. I, I know he didn't invent it, but he's the one I remember saying it, so he gets the credit. He said, in the kingdom of God, that all people are equally justified, but we are not all equally sanctified. We're all equally justified. We're not all equally sanctified. And what he was saying was that through faith in Christ, we are saved. And one saved person is not more saved than another person, right? Another saved person. We're all saved and we're all equally saved. But very important for what Jesus is saying here. There are Christians out there who may be more like Jesus than we are, right? Some people are further along in the Christian life than others. I find it incredibly encouraging to know that there are more godly people out there than me. That is is very good news. Uh, And I hope you do too. I hope you're encouraged to think someone in this room is more holy than me. I hope that is actually really, I hope that blesses your heart to know that. There are people out there that God has gifted with great humility and with humble reliance on Christ in a way that you and I hope one day will be true of us. Can you think of people, can you think of people in your life, maybe even people that you know here at Evergreen, who seem to be further along in the Christian life than you? Now appearances can be deceitful, of course. We should we should be in the business of admiring the holiness we see in other Christians, though. Are you, do you admire the holiness that you see in other Christians? Or do you just sort of squint with suspicion at each person that you meet and assume that you know better, right? By the way, I, I love reading biographies of missionaries, of, of ministers, of church fathers. I love reading about God's work in the lives of others that went before us. This is one really great way to cultivate that attitude of, of gratitude, Um, for other people is reading Christian biographies. Let me just commit it wholeheartedly to you. And if you ever are in need of an ideas, come to me. But this is a really excellent way for us to be reminded that there really are those who are great in the kingdom of heaven. They're not more saved than us, but they are more holy. And we should have an increasing hunger for holiness in our own lives as well. We should want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. That's a godly ambition to have. But we shouldn't want to be known for being great in the kingdom of heaven. That's the paradox, isn't it? But that's what Jesus is pressing us toward with the second point. He's he's pressing us toward uh, greatness with a childlike answer. But then third, this morning, Jesus gives a stern warning. In verse 5, Jesus changes his emphasis. Instead of telling us to become like children, 
he talks about us receiving a child and he warns us about putting stumbling blocks in the way of that child. Now, I think he's using the term child here in a metaphorical sense. I'll talk about that. But look at verses five to six. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What an inspiring way for our passage this morning to end. You know, you just ended on that beautiful note of being thrown in the sea with a stone around our neck. Um, notice who Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about one of his, his little ones. He, I love the affectionate terminology that, that he applies to this person who follows him. Um, this is one of Jesus' little ones. This is someone who could be a literal child but who certainly has turned. This is the person who has become like little children. He says that this child he's talking about is someone who believes in me. He qualifies it, right? Jesus, in other words, is very defensive of the spiritual life of his followers, and he is eager and jealous to protect them from being spiritually harmed. First, he tells us to receive such a one. Right? He's telling us to show hospitality. He's saying, make them feel like they belong. Make them part of the community. That's part of the, that's the positive part of the command, right? It's, there's no prohibition here. This is him giving us a positive. Receive such a one. Receive such a one. I think it is healthy for churches to consistently and constantly be asking, is this a place for new people? Is this a place where new people feel welcome? Is this a place where God's people, as, as God grows his footprint here in this area at Evergreen, are we welcoming God's children as they come? But he doesn't just give a positive. He also gives a prohibition here too. He says something must, we must not do. We must not, Jesus says, cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And uh, this notion of causing to sin is important enough to Jesus that in essence, he says, it would be better to be killed than to do this to another believer. Um, Jesus is warning us about the sin of putting stumbling blocks in the way of other believers, of impeding the spiritual lives of other Christians. And you might wonder, what does that look like? Um, J.C. Ryle mentions the ways we might be guilty of doing this. I'm just going to read from Ryle because he does it better than me. He says, he says, we put stumbling blocks in the way of men's souls whenever we do anything to keep them back from Christ or to turn them out of the way of salvation or to disgust them with true religion. We may do it directly by persecuting, ridiculing, opposing, or dissuading them from committed service of Christ. We may do it indirectly by living a life inconsistent with our religious profession and by making Christianity loathsome and distasteful by our own conduct. It is awful to think of the amount of harm that can be done by one person who claims to be a Christian but is inconsistent. They give a handle to the unbeliever. They supply the worldly with an excuse for remaining undecided. They check the inquirer after salvation. They discourage the saints. They are, in short, living sermons on behalf of the devil. Wow. As an example of this in action, Ryle points to an example in scripture. He points to Nathan's charge to David. If you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 
David has sinned against and with Bathsheba. And Nathan confronts David with his sin. And just notice the way that David phrases it. He says, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. Right? He, he sinned against God. But, but the thing that, that, in addition to all of this, the real stinger, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. And Ryle points to that and he says, David, your actions in this matter were a sermon from Satan. David was inconsistent with his profession and he made true religion a loathsome and distasteful thing. This is a guy who led the procession to the temple. This is a guy who was the songwriter of Israel. This is the guy who wrote the Psalms that we sing. And he made God seem distasteful and loathsome. Being a follower of of Jesus means turning and being converted and in humility, coming to Christ and admitting our need, but also having fellowship with other Christians. Our relationship, those horizontal relationships we have, we have with each other matter so that we never think we're better than them or that we have superiority to them. For some of you, that's not a problem at all. You probably feel deeply insecure. You probably are constantly feeling like you're at the low rung of the Christian ladder and you're never going to get any higher. You feel very low. To that person, I want to say, you need to take hold of Jesus and realize that your worth is not based on your comparison to other people. It is your acceptance by Christ that makes you valuable. And a lot of Christians need to hear that. Many Christians, though, have a high understanding of themselves. They got the millennial problem, even if they're not millennials. We got the millennial problem of overestimating our value and overestimating our worth and putting ourselves on the rung of a ladder and comparing ourselves to other Christians. And we feel great about ourselves. And that is deeply destructive as well. Because what are we doing there? We're not really finding our status in Jesus. We're finding our status in our achievements, in the things we've done, in the, in the time we dedicate to the Lord, in the amount of time we spend praying, how much of the scripture we read each year, whatever it might be. And that is the person that's also looking at themselves to find their value. And when somebody challenges that, then our idol gets thrown down and we feel terrible about ourselves and we get angry at people. And so what we are called to do is to solely rely on Jesus Christ, coming to him with childlike faith that is humble and lacking in sinful ambition and looking to Christ and Christ alone as the sole ground of the peace we have with God. Now, not to pile it on and and overstate things, but all of this means caring enough about the faith and spiritual state of other believers that we're driven by a concern that they be blessed and that they spiritually thrive and that we make that our forward-facing priority. For example, when we're fellowshipping with other believers here, right? When we're having conversation with other believers, instead of Instead of having a conversation where the whole goal is, I want everyone to know what I've been up to this week, we instead have a totally different uh, question. How are you doing this week? And how can I pray for you this week? And then hopefully they ask you that question, and then you get to tell them what you've been up to this week, right? But you're doing it for a different reason, because they care about you and you care about them. Those are just different priorities. If we won't live like that, Jesus says, then we become a hindrance. We become a stumbling block. And we don't understand real discipleship. Are you more concerned about the spiritual lives of others than you are about your own well-being? Jesus says that is what true greatness really looks like. 
Now, I, I mentioned when I started that, that as an atheist, my assumption was that the Gospels were written to accrue power and authority for the apostles. And I, I hope you see right now that, that this passage totally throws a wet blanket on that assumption, right? Because the, the interesting thing is it actually starts off right. It actually starts off, they do start off thinking that Jesus might be their ticket to power. And, and the fact that Matthew includes this passage today is an admission of that. So, so actually, little atheist Adam was right on the one hand. That is how things started off. They did want that power. Um, and, and Matthew's admitting that, yes, we were interested in knowing when we would receive power and authority. But the passage is also them learning from Jesus the better way. That anyone who would follow Jesus is called to give themselves up and put away sinful ambition and to put away selfishness. And, and of course, five, years, five verses before our passage, Jesus had already told them that he would lead the way on this. You remember Matthew 17, 22, he said, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. So the message is Jesus first. He teaches about and practices the very thing that he calls Christians to. He, he says, yes, what he calls uh, church leaders to, uh, he calls every Christian to it as well. You before me, self-sacrifice, costly love. So our savior led, but he led in weakness. He led in service. He led at the front of the procession, but all the while he wasn't in leading in glory. He was leading with a cross on his back and a crown of thorns on his head. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you use the teaching of your Son today to press us toward humility, to press us toward service to others, to press us towards a dependent, childlike faith? Would you also give us a desire and a healthy ambition to be of service to you and your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.